Welcome to Living the Dream, a hospitality podcast from La Dame Piscoffier, New York. I'm Penny Stankiewicz, an entrepreneur, sugar artist, and chef, and a generally curious storyteller. Each week, we bring you stories and insights from personalities in the world of hospitality. Chefs, publicists, writers, and creators share what it takes to build success. Whether you're in the early stages of your career and looking for a how-to guide, or an established pro looking to sharpen your superpowers, we lift the veil on the industry to give you an honest, practical guide to building a career in life you love. I was really looking forward to meeting and talking to Adrienne Cheatham, and she did not disappoint. She's incredibly charming, super relatable. Our conversation goes to so many deep places, from confidence to burnout, and to one of my favorite topics, making something out of nothing. She's thoughtful, bright, and an all-around badass woman. For this episode's LDNY feature, Dom Catherine Gordon introduces us to Green Tables, an important initiative from LDNY. Hi, I'm Catherine Gordon, and I'm a member of LDNY, and I'm currently the chair of the Green Tables Committee. Green Tables was started in New York, and then now it's a chapter-wide initiative. The mission of Green Tables is to connect innovative, sustainable agriculture, including urban and rural farms slash gardens, with restaurant, school, and kitchen tables across LDEI chapter communities. And the purpose is educational to try to connect like sustainable farming practices to people who need the food at restaurants and schools and other kitchens. So they they definitely think of it as an an educational arm of LDEI or LDNY. These webinars and seminars and cooking classes and field trips to farms are open to anybody who wants to participate, definitely not just chapter members. And it's like an educational focus to try to like bring together the farmers, the chefs, the educators, the nutritionists, and try to change the world through the food. And and not just like from a community aspect, but from the nourishment and the cost and accessibility of the food. I think that the work that the Green Tables committees do is important because it helps bring together the needs of the farmers who want to be able to live and have a sustainable income, the people who are buying the food and want to have a better health system for themselves and nutrients for their body, the world, because we're trying to help ward off against global warming and climate change as much as possible. And then for the actual businesses involved in food production as well as farmers, because for them, their customers more and more are demanding this type of food and access to this kind of product as opposed to commercial production and industrial agriculture. There was a chef a couple of years ago who came to New York, Massimo Baturo, who did a conference that the school where I teach at, Institute of Culinary Education, did it in partnership with the new school. And we did various like classes with various companies trying to repurpose bread in various different ways and spent grain from beer. And I think that the world of chefs have gotten more cognizant of things, even like requirements to have to compost or recycle in New York City and not just fill up the garbage cans. And even New York City has a zero waste initiative for, I think it's 2030. So, you know, if you're working around here, you know, it's like things that you actually really need to know, as well as like people's personal beliefs in terms of what's happened in the world with climate change and what people can do to affect that kind of a thing. So we have a snack. Are you ready to eat? Yes. I have been waiting. 
Have you heard about these beautiful gem cakes? I have, and I'm so excited. So Joy, she's going to be a guest. I'm so excited to talk to her too, but she was a student of mine at ICE. And over the pandemic, she became probably, well, I don't know if it's actually true, but I like to think that she was the one who sort of started that home-based bakery movement during the pandemic. She got a lot of attention for it. She got to the end of the year, got kind of burnt out, didn't know what was next, took took, took a step back and developed these, which she calls gem cakes. And they're these gorgeous little baby charming cakes and today the flavors that i know look how precious they are so the ones with sprinkles are strawberry milk glaze one's white one's chocolate okay there's a chocolate peanut butter a chocolate misagaru i probably just pronounced that terribly wrong did i no (laughs) and cinnamon milky corn with toasted coconut and chocolate Mm. malted milk with chopped oreos how These look amazing. Yeah, I was looking her up after you told me what we would be tasting, and I was so excited to try these. Can I just go for it, or go do I have to it. try? Okay. No. Mm. Wow. And one of her secrets is that she uses rice flour, mm. which is what helps make them so light and delicate. This is amazing. I was going to say they're so like light, like they have a great crumb and structure on the inside but it looks like it would be dense in a way, mm-hmm. but it's so light. Very tender, very much melts mm-hmm. in your mouth. And like, oh, yeah. it's got the charm of a cupcake, right? Because mm-hmm. what people love about cupcakes, and I hate cupcakes, but I had to learn a lot about the psychology of them because people want mm-hmm. them regardless of what I think. And it's about having that special little thing that's just for you. And you can uh. eat the whole thing without guilt. And it's this little thing that's just yours and I think Mm. that these give that same kind of feeling right oh my god yeah Mm -hmm. and they're absolutely delicious all right you're gonna tell me which one's your favorite oh my god I think the the corn one with the coconut oh my god I didn't even notice they're little bears Mm -hmm. bears on there that's so charming little teddy grams (laughs) I think they're all lovely Mm -hmm. thank you so much joy for sharing this amazing treat with us Thank you, Joy. Oh my God. Adrienne Cheatham is a culinary professional at the top of her game. She's worked in some of New York's finest restaurants, including Le Bernardin and Red Rooster. She's the host of the intimate pop-up dining series Sunday Best, for which her upcoming book is named. Runner-up on Top Chef Season 15, Chef Adrienne is truly a badass professional dominating whatever kitchen she steps into. Well, it was kind of, my first jobs were kind of working for free because my mother worked in the restaurant industry. So literally every day after school, my sister and I would walk to the restaurant, you know, until her shift was over and we'd, you know, wait for her to get off. We'd do our homework in the non-smoking section. The bartender would bring us Shirley Temples or milkshakes. And like, we would just wait for our mom. And then if something needed to get done, Bussing tables, running dishes, mopping the bathroom, anything like that. Um, kind of like the the busboy kind of work in restaurants was, hey, Adrian, go mop this, you know, go mop that second bathroom for us or do me a favor and take the dirty dishes off that empty table over there and put them in this little bin and take it to the kitchen. The sexy um, stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The operational stuff that you never get to see. 
It just kind of happens fluidly around you. So those were kind of my first jobs and I did not get paid for them. It was just kind of like, my mom's like, that's what you have kids for, right? Like, yeah, right. It's also what you have interns for. Yeah, exactly. So that was, you know, I felt most comfortable in restaurant environments. I was really, really sick as a kid and I was socially awkward. I didn't feel comfortable around people um, and restaurant environments were where I felt most comfortable because nobody stared at me. I, I had really bad eczema and it ate off like 30 or 40% of the skin on my body. So it looked like I had been in a fire and people used to stare at me. Kids would point, I would get teased a lot. So in the restaurant, the staff there, like I was everybody's daughter. So, you know, nobody looked at me like weird or stared at me or made me feel insecure or uncomfortable. So I felt more comfortable in that restaurant environment where everybody was kind of family. Wow, you got over that well, didn't you? I mean, that's <laughs> what the social world. awkwardness or yeah, no, I mean, same thing for me. I was a film producer for a really long time before mm. I switched to food. And I remember there's this one time when she was just trying to get me to say a stupid little line. It was show me your hands. And I went into the booth and I literally could not do it. It was, it was mortifyingly embarrassing. I was like, show me your hands. And to this day, it's like this crazy joke. And I found for me, it was when I became an expert at something, it became really easy to talk about it. Mm. And so I actually developed my ability to have any kind of camera presence through my confidence in food and culinary things. Nice. Is that true for you too? Or was there something? Yeah, I mean, confidence is key. If you're not confident in yourself, then it's hard to to, to project that and like carry on a conversation with other people, make eye contact, um, feel like you're on the level with everybody else around you in the room. Um, so building that confidence first in yourself is key, but it usually does come through expertise in some kind of topic or knowing that you're good at something, be it sales, be it leasing, decorating, you know, design, whatever it is that gives you that confidence because you know that you're good at what you do is key to kind of holding yourself up like that. I think that's hard for a lot of young women, don't you think? So oh, incredibly. To find that confidence and, and authenticity in that confidence, right? Because mm -hmm. we can blow ourselves up and blow our ego up, but it doesn't really mean that at our core, we are yeah. still there. It's more of that like internal confidence to know like, not to say like I'm the shit, but just like, I've got this. Like I can handle whatever the hell is going to come at me in this environment, in that environment. Nobody's going to rattle me. Nobody's going to shake me because I know how to do this job. I know how to navigate this environment. So how did you learn how to do this job? So obviously you had an introduction to it when you were young. And then at what point did you decide that you wanted to do it for a career? I decided in high school, but my parents were very unsupportive of that. My mom coming from the restaurant industry herself knew, she worked mainly front of the house and then sales to restaurants but she knew that she had had several friends burn out and not really have much to fall back on if they had gone straight to culinary school after high school. So my father had like the Southern black man approach to it where he was like, I didn't fight for civil rights for you to go become a burger flipper. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I marched for the right to vote so that you could have more options. So for both of my parents that equated to going to college. So I went to undergrad first, I actually went to Florida A&M University, which is one of the largest historically black countries in the 
colleges in the country, studied journalism. I started in finance and my mom, she had let her convince me. She was like, just make a lot of money, work in finance and cook as a hobby. I was like, oh, okay, I'll give it a try. So I studied finance for my first two years. And then it was like, you know what? The only thing I like about this is the research. Everything else blows, not a fan. And it came down to like, what am I going to do? Like, yes, I can take this, this background in finance and still work in restaurants, or I can take the two years that I studied in it and the accounting classes that I took and still shift that over. So I don't need the degree in that. So I transferred, I switched majors to um, journalism and public relations and wound up graduating from the school of journalism because I knew that if I was tired of standing up for 16 hours a day after 20 years in kitchens, I could at least sit down and write about it. So that was kind of the segue there. So I, I kind of always knew that I would go into it. It was just a matter of when and how, like what would be my first real job that I got paid for. And that came, I did dessert catering in college because it was easier to outsource the pastry catering for the large companies in Tallahassee, Florida, than it was to try to establish and win these contracts as a full-time student on my own. So I started a dessert catering company and I would outsource desserts for different companies for their events. So worked out great, you know, had some, some cool events. I mean, it's the state capital, so there were a lot of political events and then I went on to working in Orlando at a restaurant and then moved up to Destin on the Gulf of Mexico. Massive resort, it's like a small city. And I worked in the banquet and pastry kitchen there doing overnight production. On the property, there were four Starbucks, there were eight restaurants, one of them fine dining and like five or six beach shacks. So we did the cookies, the cakes, the muffins for every single outlet on the property. And it was awesome. I learned so much in that time. And so that was, I really count that internship at that resort in, in a hotel kitchen is really like my introduction to the industry. And I fucking loved it. I was like, this is where I was meant to be. I get that feeling. I remember walking into my first externship and being like, yep, it's crazy. And it's, they're mean. I'll never yeah. forget the chef or the sous chef walked. Somebody had just cut themselves. He walked by and he said, you cut yourself? And the guy said, yeah. He's like, why'd you do that? Yes. <laughs> why I would mean, you do that? It's not for everyone. And it's, you no. certainly have to have a certain kind of personality, but you know, when it, when it's right for you, the second that you walk in that door, you're like, yep, I'm home. Exactly. That's and I, that's exactly how I felt. There was um, the banquet kitchen, the savory side was on the other side of the walk-ins from pastry. And I used to help with like plate ups for the large events and all that. And, you know, it was massive. It was like a golf beach convention center resort. So they would do platings for like 500 people. Wow. And, you know, it's like a pre-plated assembly line into the hot box, hot box on the elevator, elevator to the 12th floor conference. Or, you know, it's like a massive operation. I remember they were getting ready for a plate up one time and the cooks were getting their like large pots. And one guy was like kind of leaning on the stainless steel table where the plating was going to happen. And so the chef, this guy Keith, used to always keep a pot of boiling water with a ladle in it for any purpose. Uh -oh. So he took a ladle of boiling water and like ran it down the table. Toward, of course, by the time it got to him, it wasn't <laughs> boiling, but it like, you know, he was like, whoa, what? It was still hot. And he's like, get your ass off my table. I was like, oh, I love this. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me 
that your your choice in school it sounds like it was intentional but man to ultimately later become a chef and an entrepreneur all of those things were the backbone to be able to do this like did you have the foresight to know really like deeply know that someday that was all going to come into play for you not at all no zero percent i um i had no interest actually in being beyond operations and entrepreneurship. That was not my goal. I went into it because I love operations. I love managing food costs, managing labor costs, managing like personnel issues. Yeah, awesome. I do. Yeah. <laughs> Coming up with sets, spreadsheets, yeah. super sexy all the, stuff. all the not sexy stuff that happens to make an institution run on a daily basis, I love. So I really wanted to be the person behind Chef Repair or behind Marcus Samuelson who makes these operations happen and consistently on a daily basis, given whatever variables come up, I absolutely loved that. And that's what I wanted to do. It wasn't until I left Marcus that that started to kind of creep up. And especially like the world started changing as well. Social media, the internet was like a bigger thing, which was honestly not a thing when I was growing up. The internet had come about and there was email, but there was no like, you know, there was not this just network of accessible information. So if you wanted to know what other chefs were doing, you either had to go to the cities and restaurants, read Food Arts Magazine, or, you know, buy the cookbooks when they came out. Like that was it. So the world started changing and I was kind of slow to adapt to it. I was still in the mentality of like, no, you're a restaurant chef or you retire and do something else because you can't cut it in a restaurant environment. You know, and I had chefs that told me like real chefs don't do television. This and that. I'm like, and at first I was like, yeah, real chefs don't. Do. And then I was a couple of years later, I was like, what are they talking about? I'm like, that person's a real chef and they're on TV. Like, okay, I guess you can do both. So the times just really started changing and evolving very, very quickly. And you think you know what you want to do. You start off on this path. I'm never going to burn out. I'm never going to mm -hmm. get too tired of working in restaurants for mm -hmm. seven days or six days a week and 16, 14 hours a day. Like, oh, please, this is. I've, I've resigned myself that this is my life. I'm cool with it. And then 10 years, 15 years later, you're like, yeah, I'm cool with it. But like, mm, what has it gotten me in the end? And as much as I loved what I did, different opportunities come up along the way that kind of take you off that path that you thought you knew you wanted to be on, but they're great opportunities and you push yourself out of your comfort zone. And then you feel that rush of the challenge again. Like when you first got into a kitchen and you knew it was a challenge, you knew it was something new and exciting. You start to feel that again. And so you're like, Ooh, I kind of like this. Let me maybe pursue this path. Is that something that makes us different than say someone who sells insurance or like does more of a desk type nine to five job? Is it that need for that adrenaline rush? And I think start it's something new. Yeah, because I think we're all like weirdos and we're all like slightly crazy in some kind of way, in, but in a good way. But there's something about, and that's what I love about the restaurant industry is the people that are attracted to it. I have more in common with somebody that I've never met at a restaurant or in a different part of the industry and pastry or sales or operations at a hotel. I, we find we have more in common 
in terms of character and personality sometimes than you do with like some of your oldest friends or family members. We all have this like insanely weird competitive nature and need for like adrenaline. It's like life is not stressful, but we want to go find something that <laughs> is like our outlet for stress. It's like, ooh, I want to go find like a stressful cathartic release at work every day and then come back to like a nice chill life. Absolutely. I've been making the treats that are sold in the cafe or the butterbeer bar at the Harry Potter store and like all openings, how many you've done openings before, right? They're all yes. a disaster. It doesn't matter. You can be <laughs> the most established, the most planned and everything is going to hell and you just don't mm -hmm. even know the thing that's going to hell. And I'm going through all of this the first month and it's insane. And I realized in that month, other people climb mountains or jump out of planes <laughs> or do whatever it is. And this is what I do. This is my adrenaline rush. And on the outside, people are like, why are you putting yourself through that? And I'm like, yeah, you don't know how this feels. Like yeah. there's something very addictive to that feeling of making something from nothing. Yeah, exactly. To see it come together and then be this real live, tangible thing that people can interact with and enjoy. And it, you know, it's just, it's, there's nothing like that feeling. So clearly part of your personality and who you are really contributes to your success. You agree with that? I would say, yeah. Yeah. You have to have, you know, you have to have a thick skin. You have to, I don't know. I mean, I, from a young age, I've been able to compartmentalize really, really well. So I think that helps a lot. Um, but I, it's also just kind of the, the, a little bit of like, F you, I'm going to keep going for it kind of thing is like, and it's kind of like the need to prove people wrong. Oh, and also the, the need. Best motivation. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, watch, I'll show you. Yep. Yeah. Like, oh, you think I won't? Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that obvious, all that stuff really adds to success in the kitchen. Right. And you're not really doing mm -hmm. that anymore, but you did that for how long did you do that? 15 years, give or take? Yeah. 15, 16 years. Okay. And why aren't you doing it anymore? Um, just because right now I have the pop-up series. So I have a, I actually have a Monday through Friday job and it's like the redheaded stepchild of the restaurant industry that nobody wants to talk about, but everybody does is private work. So I have one client that I work with, you know, a few days during the week, Monday through Friday. And then that allows me the flexibility to be able to host the pop-up series. I just finished a cookbook. And it, it allows me the freedom, both financially and also, you know, with time that I have enough that's exciting and I have to execute food and I have to create that hospitality environment and feel a few days a week. But then I also get the rest of the days of the week to focus on my business and what I'm trying to do separately. So if it's filming a television show, if it's writing the cookbook, if it's writing a pitch for another cookbook, you know, it's, I have the time to do that. And I'm not so bogged down, like just trying to churn out events because I need to make the income also. Yeah. You can't do, so, right. You can't work in a restaurant environment or a retail environment and try to do something else simultaneously. They're way too demanding of your time, right? Exactly. It allows you the freedom and the flexibility to do the things that really mean something to you. Yeah, if you're, if I have the problem that if I'm in a restaurant, I can't really separate myself from it. So I can't go down to the office and like 
write the schedule. I'll take it home with me after work and do the schedule at home on my own time and stay up late doing it as opposed to taking an hour off of being in the service and tasting and checking or expediting or touching tables. I can't like put, put operations down and go focus on something else that needs to be done. So for me, it's, it's like all or nothing. So I had to kind of find something where I still am cooking and I still am doing that but yeah, I can put it down and walk away from it. Like your educational background, right? Being in the restaurant and having done all of those things seems to have been like the next logical step that allowed you to go off and do this. I mean, you don't, you don't become a private chef. I mean, I understand what you're saying, the, the redheaded stepchild kind of vibe of it all. But like, the truth is, is that not anybody can walk in and do that. You have to have right. some kind of pedigree because the families that you're working for are prestigious and they have events that are prestigious. Yeah. And I mean, you really have to have some significant qualifications. You're not just yeah. walking in after culinary school and going, hi, I'll be your private chef today, right? Yeah, that is so true. The um, the person that I work for was a longtime regular at Le Bernardin, you know, older, older gentleman and very cool. Just a cool guy from Brooklyn who wound up being incredibly successful, but is still a grounded down to earth person. So that's why it works for us. But he specifically was looking for not just a cook from a fine dining restaurant, but somebody that had been in a management position as well. Because there's multiple homes, you have to manage wine inventory, you have to manage, you know, sometimes staff issues because you're going to need help to execute. You know, I've done a I've done a 10 course dinner with wine pairings for 20 people at one of the homes. And I've also done, you know, hors d'oeuvres for two people. You know, you never know what the day is going to like throw at you. So you have to be able to adapt. You have to have a repertoire of knowing what to do for the occasion. And you also have to know how to execute literally beginning to end because there is no garbage cook. There's no guy who does the stocks for you. So you have to be able to manage all of the prep and mise en place that needs to sometimes start two to three days ahead and how to execute on the event. You don't want, you still don't want people waiting for a course more than a few minutes. So you still have to know how to like manage events as well. So you're right. You can't just come out of culinary school like, oh, I'm a private chef. You know, yeah. a lot of the, the good jobs for private chefs, they're looking for people with 10 years experience in restaurants. It's one of the other things that I, I really think is important that we talk about is, is kind of the idea of work-life balance right? And you're going to tell me whether or not that's actually a thing or if that's just something people say, but it does sound that, you know, be, becoming a private chef affords you more opportunity to focus on your life. Cause I find that we all get so obsessed with this and we get so focused on it. Like you were talking about being in the restaurant that we forego, I mean, forget self-care. Mm -hmm. Self-care doesn't yeah. exist for people. Like, what does that mean? I showered today. Okay. That's my yeah. self-care, right? Um, <laughs> Had a bourbon after work. That yeah, was my self-care. Absolutely. So unless you're a glutton for punishment, there's only so long that you can live that restaurant lifestyle before you burn out and before you start, your health starts to pay for yeah. well, right? When you decide that you want a different life, that you, you want to enjoy your life as much as you enjoy your career. But first of all, do you do that? Are you able to do that? Yeah, I literally had to quit restaurants and I was taking a year off actually. It was right after I left working for Marcus Samuelson, which was kind of like two years with no days off. 
because I was his corporate chef de cuisine, but then also stepped in as exec chef of Red Rooster. So if I wasn't working in the restaurant on operations there, I was doing the corporate chef work of checking on the other outlets or planning for new openings. We opened Bermuda. There was planning for the London opening. There was planning for a Miami opening and DC. So if you're not in the, the Red Rooster restaurant operations, you're in the planning stages of all the other stuff. And then on the days off that I wasn't at the restaurant, I was traveling with Marcus Samuelson for the events and media that he was doing. So it was literally like two years with no days off. And I was kind of like, all right, if I'm going to kill myself, it's, <laughs> it's going to be for me. Yeah. Um, and I'm just going to quit. Like, you know, I like, I really at that point was when I felt like I'm not impervious to burnout and I know I'm getting close. So before I like freak out and throw the ticket machine on the ground during service one day, let me just give my notice and, and call it, call it a day. Um, because at that point I was dating the guy that's now my husband and you know, it's, we would see each other. I'd get off of work at 12 or one, we'd grab a drink, you know, he would have taken a nap after dinner <laughs> so he could and, you know, we were trying to make it work. So he would take a nap, meet me for like my dinner, which is like midnight or like, you know, which my dinner was usually beer and a bourbon. And we would hang out for a couple hours, talk, get to know each other. And then once we got to the point that we're like seriously dating after a few months of this and, you know, he would come to the restaurants, I would sit him up at the bar, send him a couple apps sometimes for dinner. So that would be like a date. If I could take like 30 minutes off of service and sit with him somewhere in the restaurant that was like having dinner together. And then I would wake up at like five to go to the gym with him and take a nap again until I had to get up to go to the restaurant. So it was, it was really hard to try to balance. And I, I've never been good at that. I, I'm literally, I'm like, either I'm doing this all the way or I'm doing this all the way. So it wasn't until I quit and took some time off that I actually started to look at like what my day was like and say, you know what? I could have done this differently. I could have been more efficient at this time of the day. So I didn't have to be there from 7 a.m. to 12 a.m. I could have, you know, restricted myself to being at the restaurant during this. So there are people who are capable of doing that. It's only now that I've been able to, especially with private work, I have weekends off. You know, I work some weekends if there's a holiday that falls on it. But for the most part, I'm home by eight, nine o'clock hey. and I have weekends off and I have vacation, which is like crazy to have vacation. So yeah, it kind of took leaving a restaurant to be able to get that work-life balance. Cause for me, it was not a thing before. Would you think it was the relationship too that motivated you to want that? Definitely. Because I've, I've dated in the past and still had no care to. So <laughs> It has to be somebody, you know, that, that you also want to have something with. If you see yourself with a life with somebody, you can motivate yourself to kind of make the necessary changes for it. But if you don't see a life with that person, you're just kind of like, hey, I'm going to stay at work. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, my husband and I have been together for an insanely long time. 
nice. like 26 years this year. Um, oh, congrats. Thanks. It took him eight years to propose. That's a whole other story. But anyway, <laughs> if it weren't for the fact that I already had a very stable relationship walking into mm-hmm. this career, I don't even know how it would have even been possible. Like, I don't even know how it would have started because you're yeah. on the exact opposite schedule of the rest of the world, which is one of the things I really like about this. I hate people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like individuals, but people as a group, yeah. not so much. So like, I enjoy the fact that I'm off on Monday and Tuesday and they're off the rest of the time, you know? Right. That's like awesome. I, so were you guys together before you started in yeah. pastry? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I was in nice. film for a long time before that. Mm-hmm. And then I went to pastry school at ICE and you went to school at ICE, right? Yeah. And I went on weekends while I had the day job. And then I didn't intentionally sort of transition. I did it slowly. I did it piece by piece because I had a grown up job and a grown up salary. And like the idea, I think minimum wage at the time was like, I don't know, four or five bucks. And working for minimum wage and having people who were, you know, eight years younger than me screaming at me didn't appeal to me. So I had to find my own way to do it. Right. And at the Mm -hmm. time, there weren't a lot of options and I'm feeling like nowadays there's a lot more options. And I'm, I'm really hoping that through this podcast, that's what we, that's the message that we can convey. There's a lot of ways to be in the hospitality industry mm-hmm. that are a little bit offbeat or unusual compared to what it used to be. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's a beautiful thing how that has evolved to be able to be more inclusive of people who want to have a life. And also allowing the people who didn't think that they could have a life to get that balance because you become a better chef, you become a better manager of people when you have that balance and perspective, you have more empathy, you have more caring for other people around you. And that just translates to a better work environment for everybody. The industry's changing, right? Are you noticing those kinds of changes? Like people are... Yeah. And do you think that that has anything to do with the fact that women are in charge more often? I think so, because women are expected to be caregivers at home. Like there's certain things that, uh, you know, a man can't breastfeed a child. I'm sorry. It's just that we, there are certain things that just can't happen yet or that have not happened yet. So until that happens, like men can't get pregnant. So if you want to have a child, but you're a chef, you have a restaurant or you have a business, you have to figure out how to give yourself the space to become a parent. And you have to extend that to the men who work for you, the women who work for you as well, because you can't just say, okay, I'm going to take a maternity leave, but nobody else can. So I think women just in general tend to be more empathetic as well. So if you see somebody struggling, you know, somebody's had a, a loss in the family or something like that, you know, the restaurant is a great place to kind of forget about what's going on outside in life. And and you can kind of like shake it off and be at work and focus on work and not think about how messed up the world is. But you also want to give that person some space like, okay, maybe you don't need to work the line, but I don't want to cut your hours. So why don't you just come in and do prep for, you know, for this next couple of weeks. And then, you know, when you're feeling more like up to it, you know, so I think women managers are more, more empathetic and more able to kind of think outside the mold. And it kind of creates that environment where people want to pitch in for other people as well, because they see that example coming from the top. And it's really started to change things. Part of it was starting with just the conversation, 
just talking about it because before people were like, oh, that's just the way it is. Like, yeah. We, yeah. Can't, we can't even have a conversation. It's like, no, that's just the way it is. Shut up. I find actually that's something that I have to work on. I grew up with like, that's how men are. That's just how they are. And the, the conversation now is changing. Well, they don't need to be that way with me. Right. Like right. feel like we can actually make a difference in those experiences. And to some degree you can, but people are still going to be jerks. Like, you know, you're never going to like have a life of jerk free people, right. <laughs> They're raising expectations. And so I've found that I have to actually change the way that I think about those things too. So mm-hmm. um, it's, it's been a cha- it's challenging, but it's good, right. Because you want to be able to change as things grow. You were runner up on Top Chef. And I imagine that that was an incredible experience in a lot of ways. I'd love to hear a little bit about it. But specifically, what does competition mean for your career? How has it affected the opportunities that you've had? So I'd never done television. I didn't I didn't apply for television. Um, there are a lot of chefs who do because if you're at a restaurant, it's great publicity to compete on a show, get your face, get your name, get your restaurant out there. It's just something that I wasn't interested in. I never felt the need to compete in that way because I think every restaurant, every chef, every individual is different. So it's not like you're competing to be better than or less than somebody. I just, honestly, I was just like, I'm good. Like, I just had no interest in it at all. Um, And it was after I had left Marcus Samuelson and was taking that little bit of time off that actually one of the receptionists from the restaurants got in touch with me and was like, Hey chef, you know, I know you're not here anymore, but we've had a few phone calls for you. And I'm not sure if anybody's, you know, I don't know if anybody has your home number or your cell phone number to get in touch with you, but I just wanted to pass on the message. Um, and it was like this producer from top chef had called to see if I would be interested in doing the show. So I was like, Hmm. Before I called them back, I took like a couple of days to think about it because I'm like, okay, if they're calling me, that means that I still have to get final approval. I'm sure it's not like you're guaranteed a spot on the show, but you probably come in at a certain point in the approval process. Like I'd really have to mess it up to not be able to get on. I think, I, you know, I don't know, but like I had never considered it. And so I started thinking about what does competition mean? Is that the kind of personality I want to portray? And I talked to Chef Repair about it. And he was like, look, first of all, you're not competing against other people. You're competing with yourself. Look at it that way. And then also he's like, they're not going to make you look like an asshole if you don't give them any footage of you being an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, that's a damn good point. He was like, you're, you're not an asshole, Adrian. Like, that's not something you have to worry about. He's like, just remember cameras and mics are always on. He's like, at the same time, I know you well enough. I worked with you for over eight years. Like, I know that you're not a bad person. So that's not something that you have to be concerned about. But just be aware that somebody's always watching you. But if you're a good person, you're going to be a good person and you'll be portrayed as a good person or at least a professional. You know, that was something that my mother was very adamant about because she had come from the industry and you know, we came from a generation where you don't wear nail polish. Yeah. Like, I don't care if it's gel, it's still chips. (laughs) So my mom was like, okay, you know, if you're going to do this, you know, she gave me some things to be aware of also. And she was just like, just do me a favor. Just you've spent your year, your career being a professional woman. Don't get to doing television and change your personality. Still wear your hair pulled back like you do. Still, 
black pants or, you know, whatever it is, jeans, you know, but still be the professional that you have come to be in your career and be true to that. Don't try to become a personality or become somebody else because you're on television. Just be true to the fact that you love this industry. You love being a chef and that's what you want to portray. I can do that. Like I can just pull my hair back in a bun and like, let's rock out. Just cook. Yeah. Yeah. How different is it cooking with the cameras versus without them? It's very different because if you want to do like some dirtbag cheat way of doing something, you're afraid <laughs> the camera's going to catch you. And you're afraid like somebody at home will be like a Michelin chef and like, oh my God, I can't believe they did that. But they're like, going to do it anyway. They're going to do yeah. it anyway. There's going to be something, whatever the thing is that you didn't think of, someone's going to have something to say about. You can't really focus on what people think, right? You can right. just focus on what's in front of you. Yeah. Like I had to peel a clove of garlic, but I actually crushed it instead of just gently peeling the skin off the sides of the, like, come on, get out of here. Like, who cares? It, it is a little nerve wracking. You do get a little bit of like nerves and you shake a little. I cut myself on the very, very first challenge we got there. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Cause like, extra why wouldn't I? Yeah. Like what else would you do when you start cooking on television? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I totally get that. And to do a show like that, you have to have the point of view. Yeah, and that is something that I didn't necessarily know going in because Top Chef airs on like Thursday in the evening and I was always at work. Yeah. So I had literally, like my mom and sister loved the show, watched it for years. Whenever I would go home to Chicago for like a holiday, it would be on in the background. And I might, you know, watch a few minutes here or there, but for the most part, I'm trying to spend the 24 hour trip I have with my family or maybe 36 hour trip if I were lucky but I had never really watched the show. So I'm just like, okay, you get this challenge, you do this, you pick a dish and blah, and you just do it. So I hadn't yet started the pop-up series. I hadn't yet really delved into what my point of view and my cuisine was. So that was really challenging in the beginning because it's like, okay, the challenge is meat and potatoes for 200 people. And you're in like restaurant mode still. So if somebody tells you, like, if I'm doing an event with Marcus Samuelson and he says, you know, we're doing this thing and it's like meat and potatoes, we're going to do this dish. They say 200 attendees. So that means you need to have like 300 portions. So I'm like in restaurant mode instead of doing like 120 or 150 really well executed portions. I'm trying to do like 300 just in case we have like, it's like, that's not, it's television. It's not you know, but I was still in like restaurant mode and it took me like half the show to, re to realize that like, yes, if they tell you that you'll be penalized for running out and you have to have a hundred portions, like chances are you probably just need 75 or 60. So try to focus on making 60 perfect, beautiful, well-executed portions instead of stressing yourself to do 150 shitty ones. So you know, that was, that was challenging to learn and then add into the fact that like, I hadn't really developed my cuisine and what my point of view was. So I was just kind of executing dishes from my repertoire of working for other chefs. And it, it wasn't necessarily me. So there was no like cohesive point of view for them in the beginning. So yeah, it, it took me like half the show to kind of <laughs> learn how to, what I was supposed to be doing there. What does that mean? What do you mean by culinary point of view? So it's, it's literally just like when you're in college and they say, pick a major, it's like, pick something that you're passionate about, pick something that you love. 
for Ivan Orkin, it's Japanese food. For, for Eric Repair, it's fish. And that's the mantra or mantra of Le Bernardin is the fish is the star of the plate. So he can pull in other flavors. He can pull in ingredients from different countries and techniques, but he never deviates from the fact that whatever he's doing is to enhance the piece of fish that's on the plate. So for me, it's kind of like, what am I passionate about? What do I really believe in that I want to explore? It's just like pick something that, that you find exciting to learn about because you're going to be deep diving and doing research onto whatever your chosen thing is to create menu items and create events and tablescapes and just the feeling around that. What gets your juices flowing that you're really passionate about that you want to continue to learn about for the rest of your career? And that's the thing too, it develops, right? It's not something, you're not born with it, or maybe you're born with influences that are around you, your family, a lot of people have family. My family came out of a box or a can, so I did not have that. (laughs) You know, you have that, that, maybe that background, but it's something that grows with maturity. Editing a plate is not something most people are born knowing how to do. It's the maturity that lets you do less and take away rather than add. Yep. How hard is it to and learn how to do that? That is incredibly hard because that's the, the first thing you're like, when you first have freedom as a chef to do anything, you're like, oh my, and that's that was the hardest thing about Top Chef is they're like, you know, this is the theme for this challenge, go. And you're like, you're used to being in a restaurant where you have parameters. Like you tell me the fish is the star of the plate, and I can use whatever flavors, I can hone it in and create that. But when you have, when you can literally do anything in the world that you want to do, how do you hone it in and not do everything? Because then it just gets convoluted and you start to miss the point of the exercise. Like you don't need to have charred scallions and sliced raw chives. And, you know, it's like, you don't need to show every single technique on one dish. Um, so that's the hardest thing is editing. And that's something that you learn because you start to see that, yes, this might be cool, but does it really enhance the dish? And that was something that I learned actually a lot from chef repair was he was always looking at a dish, like what can we take away? What does not need to be here? What doesn't enhance it? And that was like a very like eye-opening experience but then when I had the chance to like do my own food, I was still kind of like, oh, but I could add this. I could add this. I can put this on. I can do this cool thing. And it's like, just stop. Just <laughs> I often just tell, make it delicious. I tell students a lot because um, I teach at ICE and, the, and I kind of do the cake program there. They, they have all of these ideas. And I often remind them, this is not the only cake you're ever going to make. Every idea that you have does not have to be on this one place. Keep it, make, keep a record of it, keep notes, whatever. You'll find other places to use it. But when you put everything on one plate, you, you're no longer showing anything because it's just- Yeah, it's yeah, like that's great concept, advice. Right, that like, if you're talking to everyone, you're talking to no one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing, well put. Thank you. How important is it for the personal brand and paying attention? to that, what you put out into the world in that regard? It's very important. And I mean, I'm, I'm lucky that I grew up in a time pre-internet where my parents would tell me like, don't let anybody take a picture of you doing something that you don't want to pop up 20 years later. And then you see Miss America get her crown taken away for having photos resurface after 15 years. Like, whoa, this, this is real. 
So I was fortunate to come up in that time in the 80s to 90s where I saw that. And I was very, I, I don't have a lot of pictures of me just because I was also very self-conscious, but I was also just kind of like, uh, you never know what's going to pop up later. So I guess when the internet and Instagram and all these platforms started coming up, I'm already kind of like introverted and guarded in some ways. So it's easier to kind of say, you know what, if this is not a great picture, why post it? Like you don't just need to keep throwing up content just for the sake of it. I'd rather, you know, have five pictures that go up a month that are indicative of me. They feel like me. I feel comfortable with them. I'm, I love the food that they showcase and have them be the best version of themselves and just like, oh, this is my cup of coffee. You know, it's like some of that stuff is interesting, but some of it is, I, I feel like it can be overload because I'm busy looking at what other people are doing. I don't care to show you my cup of coffee. I'm looking at your cup of coffee. Who cares? So. Like, seriously, do we really care about every single boring minute of our <laughs> lives? You know, and we're over glamorizing it too. That cup of coffee was not nearly as sexy as that photo. Right. It probably tasted really bad. Quite frankly, it was a crappy cup of coffee. <laughs> and to your yeah, other point too, I was talking yesterday to somebody who's doing a, a what I wish I knew and she's up for a job at Good Housekeeping and they're going through a background check. And part of that hmm. background check now is going through your entire social media history. Wow. So Jeez. when you think about what you're putting out into the world, you don't even know the repercussions. I mean, your parents were really smart to kind of give you a heads up on that. It really yeah. will come back and kick you. Yeah, it can. And it's, you know, everybody doesn't keep something for yourself. It's kind of like my, you know, talk about like work-life balance, have like public life, private life balance also, because you don't want to give all of yourself away to everybody just for no reason. Keep something for yourself. There are some things that are important to you, your family life, your spouse. There, Some things are, are best to know that like there's a part of you that only a couple other people know. And it doesn't mean you're being fake. It doesn't mean you're not being authentic. It just means that you care enough about yourself. And it's, it's kind of self-care in a way to know that like not all of you is out there in the world. Every thought that you have is floating out there somewhere for people to read and judge and think about. It's just what, what you think is important to the message that you're trying to convey. That's fantastic advice. Tell me about Sunday Best. It's so much fun. Is it? <laughs> it is. I miss the pop-ups. I'm going to start them again in September um, after I do the, thank you, after I'm doing a residency at Blue Hill at Stone Barns. It's just so much fun. It's such a great outlet and people are just really excited to try new versions of food. And, you know, it was the season of Top Chef that I was on all season long, the judges were like, we want something new. We want something innovative. We want this. We want, you know, something cool and exciting. And that was really kind of like the food I started doing was saying, there are so many cultures that have come through these different regions of the American South and everything passed through the hands of the African-Americans who worked in the fields and worked in the kitchens but they took a little bit of every culture that came to the South. So there's so much cool nuanced food that, I mean, it's like, you could think of it as fusion, but it's also just naturally evolved over a few hundred years here in this country. And it's innovative in itself by what it brought together. 
And then just to take it a step further with like another modern technique or another modern ingredient that's, you know, come over through like globalization that it's fun to kind of like feel like, wow, I'm making like a red miso barbecue sauce to go with this barbecue quail and I'm serving it with collard green kimchi. Feel like I'm doing something exciting for me. That sounds incredible. And when you do this again, please send me an email because I absolutely yeah. want to come to that. That would be amazing. I would love uh, to have you. And then, so the book of the same name is coming out in the spring. Yeah. Spring 22, the book will be out. We just finished photography and some of the final rounds of edits on the manuscript. That's looking, looking good. We're on so time. Exciting. Are they parallel? Yeah, some of them are. Some of them are more the origin of those dishes because it was kind of, you know, talk about like fusion. My mother is from Chicago and she's, her family background is like German, Irish, and English. And then my dad is from Mississippi. So it was kind of like she was making regional Southern food, but using ingredients that were available at the markets in the North. Kind of like showing how this natural evolution came about from that time. That's awesome. And what about Blue Hill? What's going on there? So they're doing a residency program where they have a group of chefs. They pick a theme for the four chefs that they have, and they select four chefs who can take over this incredible machine of this three Michelin star restaurant with farm and, and labs and all the resources of it are at your disposal and you work with the team and it's, it's incredible. It's, it's literally like a, a culinary wet dream. Like I've never been able to have all this research that I can like, if I want to take a deep dive into different methods of doing breads and have a professional who works with bread, who knows it better than I ever will to help me work on the flavors and textures that I want is incredible. And is that something that helps you keep your interest and your passion for food? Yeah, for sure. Because it's, you can start to get kind of jaded if you're like, oh, I'd love to be able to do this, but I can't, I don't have time. I don't have the resources. I don't have a restaurant. So I don't have a staff of people that I can delegate some of these projects to. So, you know, you kind of like lose a little steam after a little while of not being able to always like, oh, okay, I still can't do that. A year later, still don't have the resources to do this. But for them to all come together, like from farming, agriculture, whatever you want to plant, I, wanted, I want this to bloom at this time so we have flowers available and the stems. Like, it is amazing. How long is this going on for then? We have been, it's been months of planning. I've been going up to the farm for, for a while now. And I've gotten, I've spent some time up there doing prep to get some fermentation started, menu meetings, meetings with the, the baker there, because we're milling grits from different types of corn to see which flavor we like the best. So, you know, it, it's been a month long process already. That's really amazing. That's such a luxury to be able to do that. Yeah, it is. What is success for you? I kind of see success as freedom, like freedom to fuck up, freedom to fail. Success is having that room to experiment and not everything works out, but the fact that you can, and it won't cause you to lose your business. It won't cause you to lose your reputation. Success means you have that, that space to kind of create and grow and try new things in 
without fear of losing everything. And what about failure? How do you feel? about? Oh, it's a part of life. Have you made friends with failure? Yeah. I mean, me and failure, we go way back. (laughs) (laughs) We're good old friends. It's, you know, it's, it's something, you know, nobody wants to admit it, but like, it's a part of life. Like, you know, who cares at the end of the day, you pick yourself up and you keep going. You know, not everything works out. Not everything is a success. Not everybody likes every dish. This dish could actually suck. You might overcook something. You might, you know, your business might go under, you know, shit happens. It's life. But, you know, you just have to be able to pick yourself up, you know, shake that shit off and, you know, give yourself a day to mourn and then keep it moving. Today, I've had an amazing conversation with Chef Adrienne Cheatham. I'm so lucky to have her words of wisdom to learn all about her amazing experience. And I can't wait to have dinner with you at Sunday Best. Yes, I can't wait. Thank you so much for having me, Penny. This was an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Today's What I Wish I Knew comes from pastry chef Vicki Wells. So I've been in the business a long time and failures. So what I wish I had known when I was sort of first starting out or at least a little bit, you know, younger and fresher in the business, I would say one thing is balance is key. I believe strongly in balance of everything. <laughs> whether it's a recipe or balancing your work life with your home life and social life, et cetera, et cetera. Instead of just focusing all on one, I really believe in having that balance. And I didn't really think that way when I was younger, but I see now that it's very important. Another thing that is really huge for me is that I didn't recognize my own talent and skill for a long time. When I started to be more successful and I got awards and I had a very high profile job at one point. And you, when you are different from the other people that are in that group, there's this thing called imposter syndrome where you're like, oh my God, I don't belong in this group. And that was not very smart on my part because I did belong in it. And I, you know, it was hard for me to recognize that I was really good and my talent and skill were valid. I wish I had felt that validity sooner. I've done a lot of photos and magazine covers and stuff like that. And I had done something for a magazine along with a bunch of other all French male pastry chefs. (laughs) And I thought, oh, my mine isn't as good as theirs. So I don't even know what I'm doing in this group. And mine was the one that was picked to be on the cover. Oh, (laughs) maybe I am good. Living the Dream is a hospitality podcast produced by LaDame Descoffier, New York, and Penny Stankowitz. I'm so glad you joined me today. If you enjoyed your time with us, please like, share, and review. Thanks to Catherine Gordon, Adrian Cheatham, and Vicki Wells. Today's tasting notes came from Joy Cho. Head over to LDNY.org for more information on LDNY. Our theme song and audio bites were created by music supervisor and composer DJ Cherish the Love, and our logo was designed by Lauren Nysenson of Sugar and Script. We're on all social channels at Living the Dream LDNY Podcast. Check the show notes for links to LDNY and all of this episode's guests. Thanks for joining me today and have a great week.